Late Night City, Beyond the Dark. Let's speak to Professor Chris French, who is a fascinating man, but I'm not going to attempt to tell you his title. Go on. <laughs> go on. No, go, all right. You're just going to laugh at me now. Head of Amalistic Psychology <laughs> Research Unit. Oh, it's a good attempt. Anomalistic, as in anomaly, OK? And what does it mean? It means basically the science, the psychology of weird stuff. So it's anything from people who think they've been abducted by aliens to people who think that they've... Uh, seen a ghost or they have psychic powers and, right. and so on and so forth. So why can't you call it the head of people who've got strange things? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, the reason I ended up calling it anomalistic was because yeah. people used to say, you know, what, what's your area of research? And I'd say, oh, it's the psychology of paranormal belief and ostensibly paranormal experience. It was <laughs> a bit of a mouthful. So uh, I was trying to come up with a shorter, catchier title, so anomalistic seemed to fit the bit. But now everybody just says, well, what the hell is anomalistic psychology? So I still have to tell them, uh, give them that long definition anyway. But that's what it is. It's basically the psychology of weird stuff. Well, you'll be pleased to know that my listeners will be roaring with laughter because I'm dyslexic, so they know that I would have suffered with that one. <laughs> I'm sorry. So who's Chris French? Tell me about you. Give me a background. Uh, well, right, as you say, I'm, I work at Goldsmiths. I'm a professor of psychology. Um, I used to be a believer in a lot of paranormal stuff, but the more psychology I learned, um, the more sceptical I gradually became. And, uh, and these days, as I say, um, I'm still fascinated by these kind of topics, but I don't think that we need to go for paranormal explanations. I think we can explain most, if not all of them, in psychological terms. Wow. That's a hell of a statement. So you used to be a believer, but now you're not. Um, That's really interesting because in this day and age that we live in, more and more people are looking towards those things, aren't they? It's it's interesting. There's always been, and there always will be, um, a sizable proportion of the population that do believe in the paranormal. And, I mean, even, even more interesting, I think, from a psychological point of view, Lots of people who claim they've had direct personal experience of it. And the kind of figures, if you look at opinion polls, they kind of fluctuate a little bit. But I I think those kind of um, experiences, people will always have them. uh, And the beliefs that are associated with them will always be around. So I'm not on a kind of crusade to try and wipe these kinds of beliefs out. It's purely, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, might some of these claims actually be true? Might there be some paranormal experiences that completely defy explanation in terms of conventional science or might it just be that we've not really tried to look for them that much until quite recently interesting you say that you're a fascinating man already even though i got got off to a bad start (laughs) (laughs) so i have psychics on my show now i'm a non i'm a non-believer I am very sceptical, but I never poo-poo it because one of our busiest nights is when we have a psychic on. And we can have, and we had one psychic once, genuinely uh, blew the phones up. And we found out they had to put a filter on the system. We found 19,000 people had tried to get on to speak to her. That is impressive. how How do you justify that? Well, again... I mean, there's two kind of there's two strands to the research that we do. One of them is the one I've been talking about so far, really, where we try and come up with non-paranormal explanations for ostensibly 
paranormal experiences. So, uh, and then we try and test those explanations. But there is another side to the research where we actually directly test paranormal claims. And what that sometimes might involve is getting people who are professional psychics who say, I'm convinced I've got these abilities, put me to the test. And so we've done that a number of times with a number of different psychics. Um, and it's interesting because obviously I make a big distinction between those people who call themselves psychics who are actually deliberate con artists. And I think that's the minority. I think the vast majority of people who claim to have psychic powers genuinely and sincerely believe that they have. It's interesting when we look at the con artists, though, look at the techniques that they use. There's a technique called cold reading. Have you, have you come across that, yep, Pete? Yeah. And, I mean, it's basically a technique that uh, anyone can learn it. Some people will be better than others, as is often the case. But you can use it to convince complete strangers that you know all about them. And in skilled hands, it can be incredibly convincing. Uh, it involves lots of different aspects. I mean, one kind of one important part of it is something called the Barnum effect. There are certain kinds of statements that sound as if they're saying something very perceptive about your innermost personality, but actually apply to everybody. So, you know, a typical Barnum reading might have lines like, "I'm, I'm sensing that you've." You've got a lot of unused potential. You've achieved a lot in life, but there's so much more you could achieve if you could just tap into that potential. And we all think, yeah, that's me. You know? um, or I'm sensing that there have been times in the past when you've regretted revealing too much of yourself to other people. And, you know, again, we can all think of times when we've told people things and afterwards wished we hadn't told them because they were a bit too personal, that kind of stuff. So there's lots and lots of lines like that. But... Skilled cold reading involves a lot more than just those kind of generalizations. People come away with the impression they've been given very specific, accurate information. And when you actually analyze sittings between psychics and clients, uh, you find that the psychics often ask an awful lot of questions, which is a bit odd because you know, they're supposed to be telling you stuff rather than asking. But it's the way they ask the questions that is interesting. They typically will ask the question as if they're just looking for confirmation of something they already know. So, I mean, on one occasion, I had to pass myself off as a psychic on um, Richard and Judy back in the good old days. And um, at one point during this reading, I said to uh, the, the person who, who had been told I, I was a genuine psychic, um, I, was, I was pretending I was, I was a bit naughty. I was in contact with the spirit of a dearly departed granddad. I said, was, was he a tidy man? And she said, yeah. I said, yeah, I thought he was. He's put everything away, didn't he? Everything had its place. If she'd have said no, I'd have just said... No, I didn't think he was. He never used to put things away, did he? I was just leaving him lying around. You know, either way, it sounds like I'm asking for confirmation of something I already know, but in actual fact, I've no idea. Now, there are, there are lots of techniques like that. There's, there are whole books written on cold reading. Um, I think that when the, 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 the sincere psychics, the ones who really believe they have a gift, I think they're doing something similar to that, but they're not even consciously aware of the fact that that's what they're doing. Wow. One of my one of my uh, all-time questions when we've had a psychic on is why do they never give a name? I'm getting a letter A A A or B A or B and they never give a name. I'm talking to Leanne. Yeah. <laughs> they never and it's the one thing and I asked one psychic which made me laugh. 
Why do you never use names? Because they came into this world with no name. Why should they use a name? And I went, that's the best one I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's, I mean, this is it. You know, they, uh, or, if they, or if any names do come out, it'll be in the context of, and who's David or Dave? I'm getting the name David or Dave. You know, now, if you don't know a David or a Dave, it's, it's highly unlikely. You know, but, I mean, you might get somebody who's actually married to Dave, uh, in which case... They'll probably later on be telling their friends, and he knew that I was married, that, that, that my yeah. husband's name was Dave. Now, of course, that's not what happened. He just came out with the name Dave. You've made it very specific because you've made that connection. So, Chris, I've got to ask, when you're doing all your research, which is fantastic at the Goldsmith University of London, have you ever found a psychic that you've spoke to has baffled you or not? Uh, not really, no. Not certainly not in in terms of the kind of formal tests that we've done. Um, no, nobody's ever really even come close. To be perfectly honest, um, which is a, a, you know, a, bit, a bit disappointing and surprising. But uh, yeah, these are people, as I say, who in when they're kind of doing their stuff in uncontrolled situations. Mm obviously are convincing enough that they're actually able to make a living out of it. So it's really interesting to kind of compare what happens in the kind of, in that context with what happens when you try and test them under control conditions. I mean, I've taken part in one or two TV, well, quite a few TV programs over the years, but uh, generally I've I've also not been impressed by what's happening there. There is there are a couple of exceptions to that. A couple of programs where they've not been enough to kind of convert me back into being a believer again, but they have at least given me kind of pause for thought. I mean, to give you one example, there was a program uh, called "The Man Who Paints the Future," that was about um, an artist who believed that sometimes his dreams predicted the future, and what he used to do was to um, wake up in the morning, we'd had one of these dreams, and he'd try and get a, a mental image set in his mind, and then he'd get up and he'd either paint a picture or draw a picture and maybe write a few notes on it, and then just put it to one side because he didn't know when the event was, was actually going to happen. And it might be a week later or it might be 20 years later, he'd be watching the news and think, that's what I dreamt about. And he had a, an interesting way to try to prove that he wasn't just painting the pictures after the events had taken place. He would toddle off down to his local bank and have a photograph taken of himself holding the picture in front of the little date thing on the wall. You know, which is kind of it's a bit amateurish, but it's, it's really, it shows good intention. You know, yeah. I think the guy was totally honest. Um, and on the one hand, you know, our role in the programme, my role in the programme was to kind of put forward possible sceptical, non-paranormal explanations, which is what I did. But there were a few of the uh, paintings that he'd done that actually did give you pause for thought. For example, he had two dreams about the Twin Towers collapsing. One was a couple of months before it happened, and the other was five years before it happened. Uh, but it was five years to the day. So you've got this rather spooky photograph of him holding his picture, and it's definitely the Twin Towers in the picture, with uh, the date uh, 11th of September on the wall behind him. So, you know, who knows? So you had no explanation for that? Uh, I mean, basically, he painted such so many pictures. I mean, yeah, one of the right. things that we did was to look through the news archive to see if on occasions we could find uh, incidents in the news that were even better matches 
to his dreams than, than the, 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 the event that he had actually identified. Because it's, what you can get in this situation is something called subjective validation. And what that means is if you've got two very rich stimuli, in this case a, a picture with lots of detail in it, and all of the news items over a very long period, if you expect to find some kind of connection, some kind of match there, there's a very good chance that you might. Now, whether or not that in itself proves that there's something psychic going on is a different question. Um, and the fact that we could find other, picture, other news events that seem to match his pictures, in some cases even better than the news events that he'd found, showed that there was room for that to happen. And the same kind of thing is happening when psychics are doing readings. If you've got somebody there who, who is a believer... They are looking for the connections between the sometimes vague statements that the, that the psychic might come out with, like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting an image of a, of a, of a black dog. What, what does that mean? You know? uh, or I'm getting the letter M. Somebody with the name begins with the letter M, and they're making the connections themselves and then remembering them as being more specific and striking than they actually were. So, Chris, you really do delve into it. You really dig, don't you? Well, yeah, I think that's what you need to do. I mean, um, it, it's, it's one of those areas I've found that very often when you start to dig deep into particular claims, they very often become weaker and weaker the, the further down you go. So things that might be presented as being kind of dramatic evidence to prove the paranormal, once you get a few more background facts and details, you realise that maybe they're not quite as impressive as they're being presented in certain TV programmes or newspapers or magazines. Chris, I've got to ask, and I, I've mentioned this on air before, and I'm always very curious about this. Um, right, some psychics say they, 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 they talk to voices, they have spirit world. Mm -hmm. But if somebody's a schizophrenic, they're actually poorly, they're not well, and can be committed because Well, that's a really interesting point you're making there. Um, I mean, we've moved away in clinical psychology from a kind of an approach that basically says, oh, you know, you, you, you're mentally ill, you're sane, to more of an acceptance that there's a continuum there. Uh, and that some people never have any kind of weird experiences ever in their lives. At the other extreme, you've got people who are having psychotic breakdowns and clearly they need psychiatric help. But there's an awful lot of room in the middle where you can have people... I mean, hallucinations, for example, are much more common in the non-clinical well-functioning population than is generally realized. Um, and just because you have a, a, maybe an, an occasional hallucinatory experience doesn't mean you need psychiatric help. There's this concept within psychology, uh, well, it's called schizotypy. It's a personality dimension that relates to the degree to which people have these um, unusual experiences, like maybe sometimes hearing voices, you know, that aren't people, when people aren't really there speaking to them, or seeing things that aren't there. And many people will actually kind of say, well, yes, I've had that sometimes. You know, I'm, sometimes when I'm lying in bed, I think I hear something. And, you know, and then I realize, no, I didn't. It was just, just my imagination or something else. And it doesn't necessarily indicate a, a, a serious psychological problem. It's basically only if it's happening with such frequency and it's maybe distressing that people might then seek help. Other people, and I think this is what you're getting at, might decide, actually, it's a gift. I can talk to spirits. And I think a lot of, of, of the psychics who are the genuine, sincere ones may well be 
experiencing those symptoms. But to be honest, if they're not doing anybody any harm and they're not distressed by it themselves, you might as well just say, well, good luck to them. You know, it I say I'm not convinced there's anything paranormal going on there, but uh, the, the important question from a clinical point of view is, are they distressed by it? And if they're not, well... That, well, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly why I have them on. So that, that, that's a great conclusion of that bit. I've got to ask you now, because you're so in-depth into all these things, where does religion fit in, in your opinion? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it does. It is clo- very closely related. For a long time, uh, people who were interested in this kind of area tended to steer clear of religion because obviously... There may well there may be more sensitivities involved there. Um, you probably would guess that I might be an atheist, and you certainly would be right if you did. Um, so for me, religion, paranormal belief, superstitions, new age beliefs, all that kind of stuff—they're just different examples of, of what I call magical thinking. Um, and I mean, certainly there are some experiences that people report i mean a good example would be near-death experiences which are inherently not only paranormal but also religious i mean people think that they actually you know come directly into contact with divine beings so really if you're interested in one you have to be interested in in the others as well um and i think it's you know they have the same psychological roots the same kinds of biases in the way that we tend to think and and probably based on the same kind of evolutionary history. I mean, I think a lot of these uh, biases that we have that might lead us to think that something paranormal or supernatural has happened um, are a result are a result of the way that our brains have evolved. Our brains have evolved to keep us alive, and that means that we are we have a bias towards seeing things, making connections, uh, seeing significance and meaning in things, sometimes when it isn't really there. I mean, it's, you know, on the one hand, it's a gift because it's, it's how great discoveries and creativity occur. But on the other hand, we overplay it, and it can sometimes lead us to draw conclusions which I suspect are probably not actually true. Chris, do you think religion is man-made? Uh, yeah, in the sense that it, I think it is a product of our own minds but not, 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 not in the sense that someone's kind of sat down and deliberately plotted it and planned it and designed it. I think it's something that's, that's, a, that's emerged naturally from these kind of biases that, that I think we have as a result of our evolutionary history. In your research, um, have you found whether ghosts exist or not? Um, I've not found any evidence for them. Um, and I, I, you know, I think there are lots of more plausible explanations. Um, I mean, I, you know, uh, one, one of the talks that I give if I'm invited to go and give talks is the psychology of ghosts and hauntings. And, I mean, there are lots of different factors involved. I mean, one of the things that we're particularly interested in is, uh, is something called sleep paralysis. Have you heard of that, Pete? No, tell me. Oh, always oh, fascinating. I and mean, it's really remarkably common. Um, Estimates vary, but somewhere around about uh, 20 to 30% of the population will report have, having had sleep paralysis in its most basic form. And by that, I mean it's when you're half awake and half asleep and you realise you can't move. And it typically just lasts a few seconds and you, and you snap out of it. But in some cases, 
you also get associated symptoms that make it much, much scarier. So you might, for example, get a very strong sense of presence. You feel as if there's someone or something in the room with you. And whoever or whatever they are, they don't mean you any good at all, even if you can't see anything or hear anything. But you might also get hallucinations. You might hear voices or footsteps or mechanical sounds, or you might see lights moving around the room or dark shadows or even monstrous figures coming towards you and threatening you. Um, you get difficulty breathing. There's a sense of pressure on the chest. And maybe understandably, there's intense fear. Now, you can imagine... If you get this kind of experience on a regular basis and you don't know there's a scientific and medical literature about it, it's not too weird to, to think, well, somebody's going to think either it was a ghost, it was a demon, or maybe I've even been abducted by aliens. And that is indeed what some people tend to think. But sleep paralysis, as I say, is pretty well understood. We know what causes it. It's, it can be terrifying, but it is actually essentially harmless. But, you know, if you've got the person who's having these attacks and you don't know what the hell's going on, then uh, you might you might find that hard to believe. Am I right in assuming you're the best dinner guest anybody could ever have? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be around on Saturday. <laughs> but you cause, you cause mayhem, no doubt, at a dinner party. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's one of those... I mean, this is one of those areas that, whether you're a believer or a sceptic, most people find fascinating, you know? Mm. Um, and and again, you know, I mean, believers love kind of arguing their corner on these kind of topics as well. So, yeah, it does make for uh, some interesting conversations. With your unit, with the research unit, mm -hmm. are, are you all cynics, completely cynics? I have taken on in the past uh, postgrads who were total believers and, were, you know, were convinced they were going to kind of prove prove this sceptic wrong. Uh, and my attitude would be, well, go for it. You know, I mean, the... The, the kind of experiments that you would have to do to test whether telepathy really exists, for example, would demand the same kind of skills as to look at any other area of psychology. So in terms of the scientific training, that's fine. And, you know, I think an important part of scepticism is to always be open to the possibility that you might be wrong. New evidence might come along that proves that what you once thought was mistaken, and you should be prepared for that. So I always used to basically say, yeah, OK, you, know, you go for it. You, you carry out your studies and let's see what you find. And, yeah, they haven't had quite a few students over the years who've, uh, who, who've been total believers. None of them ever actually produced any evidence that convinced me that, that I was wrong. Did you have a look at the Egyptians? Not in any depth, no. Great. <laughs> and uh, one more question. Does... Do aliens come into your remit? Oh, they do. Oh, that's one of, another, another of my favourite topics. Go on. The whole psychology of alien abduction. Oh, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Can we save that for another time? Let's do that. Would Let's you mind? That. No, that's fine, yeah. Chris French, <laughs> tell me again what you're head of. Head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths University of London. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you.